0: The title I think for this evening's was living counter culturally, um, as we can see that in the first three verses of this chapter it says, uh, "Do not love the world or anything off the world." And I wonder, it got me thinking. I wonder if you've ever heard the quote. Um, I think it's an old Chinese proverb, but I, I don't say that with any great authority. Um, that says everybody wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. And I always think that's quite poignant. Because we live at a really interesting time at the minute. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm going to be coughing and spluttering this evening. Apologies. We live at a really interesting time where how do you live counterculturally in a society like ours where everybody's trying to be countercultural? If you go onto Instagram, one of the top trending hashtags is one called hashtag authentic, which is where people take posts pictures of themselves in beautiful parts of the world or wonderful pictures of their houses and, and show this wonderful picturesque lifestyle and then say that they're being authentic in this completely posed, or posed and fake world. There's this really clear contrast going on, isn't there? Everybody wants to show themselves as being a countercultural revolutionary, speaking against the status quo. And really what happens is we all chime in often to the same kind of groupthink, don't we? And we are all fed the same kind of ideology from the world around us, which is to strive after the things that we can see and touch and feel, to get all the nice things that we can, to get all the wonderful experiences that we can, to travel the world, to do all these things that sound great, to live as if this world is all that there is, and I'm gonna say this, if you wanna live counterculturally culturally in a world like ours, it's a call to do something incredibly unattractive. It's a call to be boring in some ways, which is maybe why I, I, I'm very proud of that as a boring person. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that we don't, as Christians, we are captivated not by a love of something temporary, and attractive. We're not the people who are probably going to be driving the flashiest cars or have the most impressive jobs or go away on the most impressive holidays and come back with the greatest spiritual revelations as we went hiking through the Himalayas. Rather, we are the people who will find joy in ordinary life because we live with the first wonderful truth that we see in this passage. Because we realise that though we are in this world, this world is not all we were made for. And that's why John opens it with, I think, one of the hardest truths um, in this letter. But one that I don't think we should ever shy away from that says, Do not love the world, in verse 15, or anything in it. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Or you can even see down in a wee footnote, it can also be translated as, the Father's love is not in them. Isn't that a stark contrast to the world around us? John puts down this really clear idea that we can choose to love one of two things. We can love the world or we can love God. And this is summed up really well elsewhere in the Bible where it says that you cannot serve two masters, you cannot love God and money. You know, we know this well, but yet this is possibly one of the hardest things to work out because we are bombarded with the things around us. And John is, John is perfectly aware of how hard it is to not love the world. Do you see how he lists down the things there? He says in verse 16, for everything in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father but is from the world. We are faced with these three big things. We are faced with lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh, we all think of this as maybe sexual urges and desires but often it can be, we've just come from Christmas and I I speak as probably a large hypocrite here, but lust of the flesh can be as much as just gorging ourselves and I think then over Christmas on how my flesh sat down beside a full-size chocolate bar and ate it all in one go. Or I think of how I sat down for the third day to a massive turkey dinner, knowing that I didn't really need it, but ate to the point where I felt physically ill. Our our, our bodies are attuned. You know, there's, there's a sinfulness in us that whenever we have something Good set in front of us. We want and, and something good and that's from God. And I'm sure we said thanks before our Christmas dinner as well. But whenever it's sat down before us, there's something in us that wants to take this good gift from God and just indulge in it until it becomes something unhelpful and destructive. And that can be in so many things in this world. So many things that we know are good and wonderful things, but we just want it all now. It's not attractive and it's not beautiful, but it takes the wonderful things of God and it corrupts them. And then the other thing that John warns us of is the lust of the eyes. And this is something that if you're a generation on social media, you are most, most keenly aware of this. Um, countless studies have shown that whenever we go on Facebook or we go on Instagram and we scroll through our friends, and we see the holidays they've been on, we see the, the new car they've got, the new job they've got, and they show the highlights of their life. The studies have shown time and time again that social media has only ever had a negative impact on our mental health because we compare ourselves with other people and we can continually look at other people's highlights and feel that we should have that as well and come away feeling worse. We all know it's bad for us. We all know it's destructive in some way and yet we do it we look at our friends who have went away skiing for the third time this year and go oh i wish that was me or we look at other people and we feel well i haven't slipped up as much as them i'm doing better than they are and we are constantly in this lust of the eyes that looks round us and sees am i getting my fair share am i doing better and then there's the third thing: the pride of life, that point where we just look back and say, "Look at all that I 've accomplished and all that I 've done." you know pride Pride is possibly one of the sneakiest sins. Um, Thomas Aquinas, a Roman Catholic theologian um, writing in the medieval Times said that um, it was probably the the, the root of all sin was some form of pride, and the reason he said that was because pride is what caused Adam and Eve to eat the fruit in the garden because they said that they deserved to be like God. Pride is what caused Satan to fall because he wanted the glory that was given to God. Pride is where we seek to put ourselves on that podium that only God deserves to be on. And so we live in a world where we are bombarded with these pressures. And these things, whenever we talk about them in this way, they sound thoroughly unattractive, don't they? We look at people who are maybe constantly gorging themselves and have no self-indulgence, who are filled with that lust of the flesh. We don't think that's an attractive thing. Or we see people who are constantly envious, constantly longing after the next thing. And we think of how much better contentment is. Or we think of people who are just filled with pride. And we think of how much better humility would be. And John says that if you want to contrast yourself with that, love God. Because what's dangerous about these things is, is not that they're inherently bad. It's not that there's something necessarily sinister or evil about them. But that we live in a world that is constantly trying to take your affections away from God and put them somewhere else, to something that doesn't deserve it. And ultimately, the reason why we don't want to love these things over God is summed up in verse 17. Do you see where it says the world and its desires pass away but whoever does the will of God lives forever. As Christians we are to live with eternal eyes. Eyes that realize that though we may not have treasures here on earth we will have treasures beyond counting in heaven. That we have such a hope placed in front of us, that it makes everything else in this world somehow feel trivial. And that can feel such a hard thing to to grasp at because we live in a world sometimes where God can seem so distant and far away from the normal nine to five. And yet, can I encourage you, lean into God and lean into a love of Him that realizes that He is real And the promises that he talks about are 100% going to happen. And that one day, all of the things we feel we missed out on, all of the things that we feel we, we settled for second best, will be completely forgotten about and seen as the rubbish and dirt that they are compared to the hope of having our Father in heaven. That's the Christian life to look around at this world and see that we are destined for something so much greater because we are destined for eternity with God. And yet, there's a tension in that and this is what we see in the next passage where you look down at verse 18 because we know that that is a hard thing to grasp and that's a hard thing to work out and we know so many people who get pulled away And this is the issue then that John begins to talk about whenever he looks at antichrists. So if you look down at verse 18 with me, it says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So, how do we get from talking about loving God and not the world to talking about antichrists? Okay, and, and often whenever we hear the word antichrist, we think of lots of maybe weird novels and blood moons and particular channels on, uh, on Sky TV that love to unpack things to do with, you know, this person has sat on three councils and is therefore a form of the antichrist. Um, how do we get from loving the world to Antichrists. Well, it's really simple. Um, antichrist here is not like the singular antichrist, but simply means people who are against Christ, people who are opposed to Christ. And what has taken the, the step from, from having a conversation in, uh, with this church from John on loving God and not the world is that there are people In the church that John is writing to, who at some stage have had their love fixed, not on God, but on the world. And as a result, it's not that they are passive towards Christ, and it's not that they are neutral towards Christ, it is that they are now opposed to Christ. They are anti-Christ's. And it's interesting because this is the only time in the Bible where we see that something like the Antichrist can actually arise out of the congregation, out of the church. So there's been actually a problem has went on here where there have some, been some people who have actually been amongst this community, amongst this church, who have now completely turned their back on the faith and are opposing the faith. And what's worse What's worse is that these people actually believe that they can still have some sort of connection and fellowship with God. So if you look with me at 1 verse 6, it says, If we claim to have fellowship with God or with Him and yet walk in darkness, that's almost an allusion to that these people are claiming that they have some sort of fellowship. Or again, in 2 verse Yep, in 2 verse 5 it says, but if anyone obeys his word, love of God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know who are his. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So John is trying to contrast the actual believers that he's writing to with these people who have went out who are the antichrists. So what's going on is that there are people who are claiming that they still have some sort of fellowship with God, but they have it apart from Christ. So these are people who are incredibly... Articulate no doubt who are probably very easy to listen to who show some sort of interest in religious things who from the outside could be said to be you know searching or wandering or or having some sort of spiritual quest, but they're doing it outside of Christ and are therefore opposed to Christ and so it 's not that they are it's not that they are are just indifferent to the church. It's not that they are some sort of passive thing that the church can ignore. They are something the church needs to be wary of because, and I've used this quote so many times and I'm so sorry because you're going to get fed up with me saying it, but it's from John Owen. It says that the greatest contest on heaven and earth is over the affections of the poor worm we call man. What do we mean by that? Everything in this world is trying to pull our affections not to a neutral thing, but to another God. There's no such thing as neutral spirituality. Something will always fill the void. And if that thing is not Christ, it will be something that is opposed to Christ. Because Christ is the only thing that ought to be in the center throne of our lives. Christ is the only person deserving of that kingship and lordship over all of us and if we remove him from that if we displace him from that it's not that we have somehow left with some sort of neutral vanilla flavored spirituality it's that we're now left with something that is going to be destructive to Christ and destructive to the gospel and leave us in peril and leave us outside of the love of the father and that ought to be worrying and I think when we read a passage like this um, we, we I think in some ways we can be scared of a passage like this because we think am I somebody whose loves could be pulled away from Jesus and put on something else? Am I somebody who could love the world too much to the point where I don't love Jesus anymore? And I I want us to not go away in some sort of peril of our salvation with that, but rather, John directs our eyes to the thing that is deserving of our attention and our faith. So he sees this, and if you look down at verse 20, 20, he says, "'But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do not, you know it, and because no lie comes from truth.' Who is the liar It whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ? Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and as that that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Are we afraid of our loves being led astray? Are we afraid of being captivated too much by the world. There is an antidote that John talks about here. And the antidote is not what we automatically go to do. If you're anything like me, quite often whenever you go through a crisis of faith or a doubt, what your brain does and what your mind does is you automatically turn inwards. And you say, right James, let's figure out what you're doing. Let's see if you can tick enough things off the tally sheet to see if you can get some assurance of salvation and some assurance that you actually believe in Christ. You go to church, you do this, you do that, you do Bible readings, you pray. That's that's not what John gets us to do. Because if we turn inwards in on ourselves to try and find some assurance and to try and find some hope, We are just doing exactly what the the devil wants us to do. It's summed up so well. It's one of the reasons why I love Before the Throne of God Above, where it says when Satan tempts, tells me of despair and tells me of the guilt within. The reaction of that hymn writer was not to say, I need to look harder in myself to find something good. The hymn writer says, Upwards I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. The antidote for us being worried about losing our affections for for Christ for this world is not to look harder at ourselves, nor is it to look harder at the things around us. It is to look harder and longer and to be captivated by the beauty of the Christ that we worship. The Christ who, John Owen sums it up when he says that people like us who have a weak faith have a strong savior in. Or Samuel Rutherford said, he's the rock, it's not our rock that doth ebb and flow, but our sea. We look to our rock, our anchor, the one fixed point, the one thing that we can always rely on, not on frail, sinful, messed up James, or in ourselves, but to our rock of our salvation. We look to Jesus. Whenever we have doubts and whenever we have fears, we don't look inward. We look upward. Because that alone is where we can get some sort of hope and life because we see the Son who gives us that hope and life. And that was the danger with the antichrists. The antichrist that John's talking about here, their big sin was that they began to see Christ as something other than God. I wonder do you take Christ's divinity as something especially important for your day to day life or is it just a cerebral doctrine that changes nothing you know sometimes I think it's really easy for us in evangelical circles to fill you and fill congregations with loads of to do's for your spiritual life you know to tell you to read your bible to pray every day and go to church regularly and you'll grow 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 and we forget that the Christian life is not getting a to-do list of things to do, nor is it a self-help, self-help book. If you needed a self-help book, you could go into any number of charity stores on January 5th and find them in abundance. No, the point of Christianity is that we come and we enter into communion, n- not with another person, not with a guru, not with a teacher, but we actually get to encounter God. And that's that's what John laments at here, is that these antichrists, it's not that they're somehow living in a way that is bad or morally inept. It's not that they're no longer good living. The danger is that these people have settled for something that will not actually allow them to have love with the Father. They have settled for something that leaves them estranged and alienated from God. And so as Christians... Whenever we think of Christ being God, the Son and the Father being same in substance, equal in power and glory for all of eternity, that is something that ought to fill us with hope. Because we see in Jesus, especially after we have just finished Christmas, that God is not far off from us, but God became flesh. We could have reached out and held him. And we know that right now at this very second, at the right hand of God in the throne room of heaven, there is a physical incarnate flesh and bones Jesus who is sitting, praying and interceding for his people continually day after day for the church, for us, for weak and needy people like us who need a wonderful savior like him. And if we don't believe in a Jesus who is God, we can't have that hope. We settle for self-help and we settle for moralism that just drives us deeper into ourselves and leaves us feeling more vapid and empty and tired. What is the issue going on in this book? That these antichrists have settled for a smaller view of Jesus. We're about to have communion. Um, I'm sure, am I allowed to reference communion during a sermon? I don't know if this is allowed by before I'm ordained, but anyway, I'm gonna do it. (sighs) What we're doing is not a nice little memorial or a nice little thing to help us remember Jesus better. But there is something incredibly wonderful and spiritual and divine taking place. Because weak and needy people like us need food for our souls or we are malnourished. And as Presbyterians, our understanding of what's about to happen here this evening is something, nothing short of a miracle. Because the same Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven interceding and praying for us is spiritually present with us when we eat and drink and nourishes and feeds our souls in a way that nothing else in this world can feed or nourish our souls. We take part in something eternal and divine in communion because we have a savior who says, are you hungry? Come and eat. Are you thirsty? Come and drink because he gives us a feast that will outfeed our deepest hunger. Come to him this evening. Taste and feel him and have his presence spiritually among us. As we drink his blood, I need his body broken for us. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful Savior we worship and how often we can be distracted by the things of this world. And Father, as we come to celebrate communion, we pray that you would prepare our hearts. Father, we are weak and needy people. Help us come to you for spiritual food and drink that our souls may be revived and we may have life and life eternal. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.